Yo, what's up, everybody? Welcome. Welcome to the Artist of Data Science Happy Hour number 45. Who's been here since like happy hour number one? I know Eric's been here around for, for quite some time, but yo, happy hour number 45, just a few more weeks till it's it's been a year straight of this stuff. So thank you guys for joining me on this journey. Shout out to uh, everybody in the room, Spencer, Abe, Abe, I got to give a shout out to Abe. He's been crushing it with um with helping with the uh, the social media stuff on the Artist of Data Science page on LinkedIn, driving that engagement and increasing the uh, brand awareness. Abe, I cannot thank you enough, my friend. Uh, shout out to Eric, Austin, Joe, Russell, Nisha, and Jacob. What's going on, guys? Super happy to have all of you guys here. Man, um, it's Friday, Friday 13th. Friday, August 13th. So some, before before uh, Abe gives his shout out to, uh, to some folks, I want you guys to think about this. What are some data science projects that revolve around Friday the 13th that you would be interested in checking out? Like, is there like a, a myth out there about Friday the 13th that you think there might be uh, data available to debunk? If so, like what, what, what type of Friday the 13th project would you want to do? Um, I'm curious about that. Uh, but Abe, Go for it, man. You got you to shout out to some folks, right? Yeah, yeah. So uh, I don't see Mark in the chat, but tell him thank you. But I know Eric's here. Uh, so I appreciate you guys helping me out uh, with sequence stuff. Um, what I would like to, th- I mean, maybe like like superstitions about different superstitions from different cultures about Friday the 13th. I don't know. That's an idea. But I actually can't yeah. stay long. I got to go be arm candy for my wife at one of her school events. <laughs> Right on, man. Hey, well, thanks for singing by, Abe. And again, thank you so much for all the help with the uh, with the social media stuff this week, man. Really appreciate that. Um, but yeah, man, Friday the thirteenth. If you could do a data science project uh, that was about Friday the thirteenth, or that you you know, if you think that there's data out there that you could use to debunk Friday the thirteenth myth, what would it be? I I got a like you know, kind of like a relatively simple thing I'd want to do with some data is you know, in the city of Winnipeg, we have an open data portal. And that open data portal has uh, the distribution of parking tickets all throughout the city of Winnipeg. So I'm wondering, are cops out there enforcing parking tickets more stringently on a Friday the 13th than any other day? Um, but I'd love to hear from, from you guys, man. What would you do, Tom? What would you do for a Friday the 13th project? I was thinking of, uh, all I could think of was Apollo 13 because I used a gift today for Tom Hanks saying, Houston, we have a problem. So it'd be kind of cool to do a, an Apollo study. Were, were there things that led up to Apollo 13 and then the really tragic, well, it wouldn't be with the 13th, but that's the only thing that could come to my mind, figure, do some modeling of uh, space program management. I'm, I'm trying to play, brother. That works. It's hey, really you know, lame, though. <laughs> nah, it involves the uh, number 13, so that works. Nisha, what about you? I think uh, I would be interested in knowing uh, how many people watch slasher movies kind of thing on Friday the 13th. Yeah. Ah, that's a good one. Yeah. Joe, what about you? I don't know. I'd be curious uh, how many people actually travel to uh, Camp Crystal Lake, um, which was where Friday the 13th took place, if you watch the movie. Oh, so uh, maybe there's some uh, weird uh, fan LARPing going on there. So I'll also be interested in meeting the people who would go to these LARPs if they were, you know, yeah, I, just, I just recently found out what a, uh, what a LARPer is. And I thought that was pretty, pretty interesting. Uh, apparently my next door neighbor is a LARPer. I don't know. Oh, you should watch this. There's a really good movie called dark on. Uh, it, yeah, it's, it's well worth watching. I, I think it's a weekend movie for you and your, uh, better half. So it's about the, it's about medieval LARPers who, uh, 
battle each other in a park. It's really funny. All right. Yeah, we'll maybe yeah. put on put it on tonight, maybe. Yeah, you'll totally uh, not watch it, but yeah. It's <laughs> no, I, mean, I, I, I watch a lot of the stuff that people recommend, man. Cool. Yeah. It's pretty funny. All right. Uh type that name of the movie out in the chat for me as well, so I don't forget it. Eric, what about you, man? What, what's the project that you would do uh, revolving around Friday the 13th? And if anybody else wants to chime in here, the, the question I'm opening with is, look, it's Friday the 13th. If you could do a data science project or just a regular data project that was thematically around Friday the 13th, what would it be? What type of project would you want to, uh, to do? Uh, Eric, let's hear from you. And then, by the way, if anybody else has questions whatsoever, whether you're on YouTube or Twitch or LinkedIn. I'm keeping an eye out on all the platforms or even here in the chat. Let me know if you got questions. I will add you to the queue. Go for it, Eric. Yeah. So my first idea was kind of along the lines of your parking ticket thing. I was more thinking though about like injuries because, you know, like I was thinking car accidents, that kind of data would be fairly easy to track. You might be able to find some sort of, I don't know. I was trying to think of, you know, like falls, like ladder related things, anything like that to get towards superstitions, but I don't, I don't couldn't really, I don't really know where you'd find data for that. And then the other one, uh, kind of along the lines of what Nisha was saying, is you could probably come up with a pretty interesting, uh, somebody who's way better at Tableau than me. But if you were, had some cool Tableau chops, you could probably come up with a really interesting analysis of like horror movie, um, like franchises, you know, like comparing them, like Friday the 13th compared to, you know, Halloween, whatever, you know, all the different um, horror movie franchises could be kind of interesting. So. Those are my two thoughts. Yeah, I like that. I mean, um, if somebody works at like an insurance company, they probably have access to a lot of good data that they could test some hypotheses yeah. <laughs> against, right? That's I don't wonder though, might you see if people are being safer, like because they're paranoid, would you possibly see like a reduction in injuries or terrible occurrences just because we're all aware of Friday the 13th and now we're being careful it can't like sneak up on you anymore? Or, or is the fact that you're aware of it only... Still, it's going to get you anyway. I don't know. It's fate. Weird thing, man. It's a weird thing. Uh, let's hear from uh, let's hear from Austin. Austin, man, I haven't seen you in a while. Good to have you back. Then let's go to Austin, then Mark, and then uh, we'll go to John's question. John's got a question. And then, uh, by the way, if you guys have questions, again, let me know uh, right there in the chat, and I will go ahead and uh, put you to the queue. Austin, go for it. Yeah. So I think I was thinking about it, and I was leaning more toward like. Friday the Thirteenth, Black Cats, that kind of thing, and just curious if there, if you could get your hands at enough uh, adoption data to see, like, are people adopting Black Cats, um, like, on other days, or maybe because of Friday the Thirteenth, you know, yeah, might have people that are like horror fanatics and like, yeah, let's let's, and there's a spike in them on that day or those days. So that's kind of where I was thinking. It was just a little different. Yeah, I mean, you figure like humane shelter type of data, it should be public since the, those are public organizations, I believe, right? That might be interesting to look into. Uh, Mark, let's hear from you. And then after Mark, we'll go right into uh, John's question. I had a pretty tangential thought. I was like, Friday the 13th, Jason, Jason wears hockey mask. In business, they have the hockey stick graph for startups when they try to pitch to investors. So the idea is comparing hockey stick investor graphs and how well they match up to reality so you can probably find some decks of startups somewhere watch some pitches get that data and then compare it to like series a series b or just failures of companies huge stretch but that's where my mind went that's a that's some creativity right there man that's connecting that's connecting a lot of uh, different layers of the neural neural network i like that i like that thank you very much mark 
All right, guys, if you guys have questions, go ahead and let me know in the chat. I will add you into the queue, uh, keeping keeping a good eye on everything that's coming in. Uh, but for right now, let's go ahead and jump straight to John's question. John, good to have you back, man. It's been quite some time. Yeah, it has been. Um, yeah, thank you as well. Um, I've recently started a job, a new job about four months ago as a lead data scientist. So Congratulations, man. That's huge. Yeah, thank, that's you. Awesome. thank you. Yeah, it's been, it's been ridiculously busy. And then, you know, I'm based in the UK, so... My time here is 10.30 when this meeting starts. So it's after, wow. after a uh, long day of uh, work. So yeah, but it's good to see all your faces. Um, so my question is on predictive modeling, actually. And I'm doing, I'm doing a goodwill project at work right now for a charity. And the charity is a UK-based charity that um, basically redistributes food waste from large supermarkets to those that don't have the funds to buy their next meal, basically, right? So the charity works by using volunteers. And what they do is they sign volunteers up to shifts. But what they often find is that they don't fill the shifts. So what they're looking for is a way to predict um, what shifts are not going to be filled so that they can take action beforehand and reach out to more volunteers to fill those shifts later down the line. So the approach I'm going with is actually looking at it probabilistically. So the idea that came to me was, what if you treated a volunteer sign-up as an event, right? You can get the probability distribution of volunteer sign-ups, and then you could from that probability distribution, maybe fit a probability density function. And then once you fit that probability density function, you could simulate volunteer signups, like how many volunteers are going to sign up for a shift um, over a given period of time. You can then compare this to the actuals and calculate errors. And then maybe you could use machine learning or some kind of regression model to predict what those errors were and adjust your original simulated volunteer signups. And that could be your asset. That's kind of the approach I was exploring. Um, so I just wanted to put that out there and see if anybody, you know, has yeah. done a similar thing, you know. I haven't, haven't done something similar to that, but just based on like the problem statement, uh, it sounds like you're trying to predict like the count, uh, some type of count value, right? So if it's That's a right. count value, I'd be inclined to probably use some type of generalized linear model, specifically maybe like a Poisson regression or something along those lines. That's kind of the direction I would try to sniff in uh, and then see if I could find something that, that fits there. But I'd be happy to hear what, uh, what other people have to, uh, to say about this too. Um, uh, anybody have any ideas? That's, that's kind of my, my, my two cents there, Poisson regression uh, or some other type of GLM. Um, but if it's okay, else? I was really trying to listen carefully, John, and I'm, I, this sounds really interesting. I, I'm like Eric, food waste, major travesty. So um, what, if, what, is your, what is the goal of your current exploration? So the goal is to be able to inform the volunteer manager who reaches out to the, the volunteers to get them on shifts, to inform them beforehand whether a shift is likely to be filled or not so that they can take some action to reach out to volunteers so that they can fill those shifts, right? Because if you imagine, if you don't fill your shifts as a volunteer manager, all that food can't be delivered to where it needs to be delivered, right? And without going into too much detail about the shifts, they need different types of workers for each shift. But I don't think that necessarily informs the predictive modeling. 
in a sense, right? You can break it out at whatever level you want, right? But the, the idea is you need to tell the volunteer manager your shift Wednesday afternoon is likely not to be filled. So take some action to, to get more volunteers in. So if I've heard you correctly, what occurred to me is this is a process, essentially, of need comes in, got to staff up the right number of people. If, the, if, if you map out the process, then you can begin to think of what data you need at each step. But it, it, it sounds like there are some features that need to be determined to predict the number of workers. And yet there's also the challenge of getting hold of the volunteers, right? Yes. Yeah. So what we're doing, right, the tool is simply to inform some decision-making mating later on, right? So we're not, we stop where the volunteer manager takes action. So what would happen is the volunteer manager would log on to an interface. We'd have the tool up and running and the tool would tell them, hey, your shift that is a month away, let's say, on Wednesday afternoon, you're not likely to get any volunteers for that shift. So take some action now to reach out to your volunteers. And that's based on previous data, right? So going with my approach before, what I would probably be looking at is I'd look at the distribution. Um, so let's call it an event distribution where one, an event is at the level of how many volunteers have previously signed up to a Wednesday, for example, right? So there'll be a distribution. Sometimes it might be one, it could be six, we could fit a probability density function to that distribution once we gather that from data. And then we could use that P probability density function to simulate for a, a, a given time period what how many volunteers are going to sign up. And then, you know, use look at the residuals between that and the actuals and maybe fit a machine learning model to predict those residuals so we could adjust our simulation. Because I, I, I have this intuition that the I have this this kind of intuition that because the the probability density function is based on data, any simulation that we gather is going to be obviously taken from that probability density function, assuming it represents the population. And then you know, but you're, you are I mean, saying that you are saying that one of the one of the key issues in executing these processes of getting volunteers to deliver this food is really just planning ahead so you have enough volunteers, right? That's, that's ex yes, that's exactly it, so, yeah. yeah. And, and forgive me for doing this because I do want to hear from others, but I read Vin's latest post very carefully. Uh, I'm one of those people, when Vin talks, Tom listens. Because he, he sounds like he's just learned a lot of hard lessons. <laughs> that's what I love about him. And I can hear him kind of saying, and, and, and by the way, John, I'm not suggesting there's not machine learning that could help with this, but um, being a father of nine, I'm thinking, oh, this might be a bigger human problem than a machine learning problem. Again, not to say no machine learning, but it's okay for the data scientists to go, you know, um, maybe there's a human solution here. So we, we have a really solid process of always getting enough volunteers. I, I apologize. I know we're data scientists. But my brain kept thinking, it's okay to think outside the data science realm and ask these volunteers, there's times we just need you on call, like a backup juror, so to speak. And there are times where you need to say, I can do it. If you can't, you get someone to take your place. I'm just saying, as you look at this, don't be afraid to call on human resources help to come up with some cool solutions too. Yeah, I, 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 it I sounds agree. like you're... You're thinking the right way on the other stuff. Okay. Yeah. 
Agreed. Yeah. And, and, and just to kind of reiterate as well, this tool is there to help, right? It's not, we're not expecting this tool to solve every problem the organization has in terms of filling volunteers. But right now, the current situation is they're doing it randomly. They have no idea how many volunteers are going to turn up on the day. They have some gut feel and the tool should help them kind of formalize that gut feel using statistics or using modeling, right? So yeah, I, I, I completely take what you're saying, Tom. And I think a lot of it is going to be down to how their outreach at the end of the day. But if we can give them something that kind of at least guides their outreach, you know, that, that works as well. Yeah, let's, uh, thank you very much for that, uh, Tom. Let's go to Mark, because I feel like Mark might have some insight, because this sounds like a typical problem that you deal with in healthcare, which like patient show-ups uh, type of thing. So I'm thinking you might take it in that direction. I'm not sure, Mark, but... What are you saying? Uh, yeah, so so I have two thoughts. One is the healthcare one because I, I did take a healthcare modeling class that I really loved, and there's a, a queuing models to help you figure out uh, figure that that equation. They used it for um, like telephone lines when they used to have to hold to go transfer people, right? Um, they use these queuing problems to to figure that out. I'll go pull it up and put it in the link. I'll go find that for you real quick, but. It was actually a more simple thing, kind of along the same long, long lines of Tom. And this stems from my, I used to do student affairs before I was a data scientist. And I worked for the, the uh, service center where we, I would actually train students on how to do public uh, social impact work. And many times, you know, there are a bunch of Stanford students who are super excited, want to do these complex things. And many times the nonprofit was like, yo, we just need you to sweep. Like that's been a problem for like three months. If you could just do this simple thing, that would be really great. So I think the first question before kind of going to technical is like, go talk to your stakeholder. And like, I want to know, like, is this going to be like a journalized model where they use for multiple sites or is it specifically only for this one organization? Can you run that context real quick? Yeah, absolutely. So this is the context, right? The charity operates across London. They have multiple sites in which they, which are based in the four quadrants of London, North, East, South, West, right? And from those multiple sites, they get volunteers in and there'll be like, for example, a driver, um, there will be a, a warehouse operator, but each volunteer operates on a shift itself, right? So if they don't get enough volunteers, in, the shift is obviously not filled, right? And the amount of resources they can distribute um, is limited. Like, for example, if a shift requires 10 volunteers, they only get one, then those resources don't get distributed to where they're needed. So obviously what they're trying to do is they're trying to optimize that process. So this tool is just one of the things they're going to use or they, we're helping them build to help them in that direction, right? So yes, there is, a, there is definitely a lot of kind of human interaction at play here, but the tool is is there because right now they're just doing it randomly. So they're just turning up on the day and realizing, hey, there aren't enough volunteers here, right? So we want to be more proactive. Awesome. The reason I asked, like it was multiple organizations, they're, they're going to have all their different processes, but since like one organization that simplifies things. Mm -hmm. And so I would actually like go to the stakeholder, one, ask them like, are they going to be able to maintain a machine learning model for themselves? Yeah, yeah. yeah um, exactly. You know, or, or is some like a like a really killer Excel spreadsheet with some cool macros going to be be the thing that that really takes over the edge? Because you can build this model that's like super correct, but they can only maintain it for like a month <laughs> if that. And then they just have to throw it away. Like it wasn't really helpful. So that's that's something I saw a lot with the social impact work um, I helped out with. In addition, um, 
I would map out like, what are the phases of engaging someone for volunteering? So like they, they put out marketing for people to join. They sign up on this link. Um, they choose their set dates, right? And then you, once you know those phases, it becomes easier to model out like what's really happening. And in addition, you can probably maybe reduce your scope where you're saying, hey, you know, there's this large problem. Our model can really help you in this specific area in this chain of like events, right? Um, so that's another component. And then another thing just off the top of my head is something you should really look into is seasonality. So especially with food, um, providing food services, uh, one of the nonprofits I work with was similar thing. They had, uh, they provide food services to the community and essentially like they had a partner between grocery stores and getting the food there and then getting the food out there and the need. And so seasonality was a big part of it. So like from the U S perspective, like Thanksgiving was a huge influx time. And so they got a lot of food in, a lot of volunteers. But like, I imagine like in Europe, when people are on vacation or holiday, what they call it over there, um, you know, a lot more people may be like out of town and can't volunteer. So that would be another thing is go talk to your stakeholder and figure out where are the phases and what's the seasonality of things. And I'll like help come across some gotchas. And then uh, I'll go put in the comments as well, those models from healthcare. Awesome. Thank you. And just to say on your on on your second point there as well. Um, so this project came about because that analysis had already been done. So it's kind of already understood the kind of chain of events that leads to somebody turning up to the warehouse, right? And they established that the weakness was in that they didn't understand who was going to turn up to the warehouse, so they couldn't be proactive in taking steps to do that. That's where that's where the tool comes in. And just to give a bit of context, this is going to be a minimum viable product um, for September. So we're not expecting to kind of solve the problem end to end. And yeah, we we considered this massively as well, whether the organization itself would be able to manage a machine learning model because of the data drift, retraining elements of it. Um, so I'm I'm also running this in conjunction with a software development team as well that are kind of taking those things into consideration and how we can best kind of simplify that process. Um, but yeah, I it, it with, the, with the approach, the second part of the approach doesn't have to include machine learning. This is more to improve the model's performance as much as possible. It could just be simulating based off distributions observed in the data as well. And that doesn't require any training of any model. So I just put in the link, a book um, is called Modeling Public Health and Healthcare Systems. Mm-hmm. My advisor wrote this book and I took his class and it's really good. He makes things very simple, but particularly you have two things in there. You have the queue optimization chapter in there, and then they have a resource optimization chapter in there. I think both of those would be really good to help you, help you kind of give you a sense of like how to think through it. And more importantly, what I liked about the book is that it talks really focusing on like conceptualizing and simplifying the problem first before modeling. Awesome. Thank you. Uh, let's go to uh, uh, Russell, then the data engineer formerly known as Joe, who's now known as just first name. And then we'll go to, uh, to I think, uh, Eric has some great insights in the chat. So we'll go to Eric after that. Uh, before we do that, though, uh, John, somebody on LinkedIn, Dwayne wants to know, not Dwayne. Uh, yes, Dwayne wants to know, are you from South London? Yes, I am from South London. Yeah. Dwayne, there you go. Um, yeah. South London. Uh, Can I just ask a question to understand? Uh, I want I want to know, John, if the people or the volunteers are there like repeat volunteers? Is it always like the same similar people turning up, or is it like totally different people every time? 
That's a really interesting question, Antonio. So we don't have much data on actual volunteers. We just have them as events right now. So when somebody signs up for a shift, the event that that person has signed up is logged. But the person behind the event, that data is not well tracked by the organization right now. So that is something that we could recommend them doing. But then there's a cost of kind of tracking that as well, bearing in mind that it's a charity. So yeah, thank you. Sorry, right. Herpre. Yeah, no, no, no problem. Good clarifying questions are good. Uh, so we'll go to Russell, then we'll go to Joe, and then we'll go to uh, Eric, and then Monica's got some great uh, comments as well. And then, by the way, if you guys have questions, um, please let me know. I will add you to the queue. Doesn't matter if you're on LinkedIn, YouTube, or Twitch. Uh, go ahead, and let me know what your question is. I'll add you to the queue after we get to um, to you know after we get through this discussion. We got question coming in from from Mark, and then another question from Dwayne, and then another question from Mohammed. Both of whom are joining us from LinkedIn. Uh, but Russell, go for it. Okay, thanks, Arthur. Evening, everybody. Um, so, John, uh, a couple of questions I've got. It seems that you've got kind of two clear um, sides of the model you want to produce. One is kind of the forecasting of the requirement for volunteers, much as, as Joe's put a couple of good comments in there for the forecasting capacity model. So that's predicting when you will need um, uh, people to come in and help you out. But have you considered also if you have the people that are subscribed to come in and you've got um, a fully subscribed event, but then people don't turn up, are you going to deal with that differently or do you expect to do that within the same model? Because I, I would I would class those two things as kind of different. You know, you've got your forecast planning to understand um, when you need people and if that requirement changes seasonally uh, or, or daily, uh, weekly, et cetera. But then if people fail to turn up, that's a different challenge. You need to deal with that. You need to know if you've got people kind of on standby that can come in and, and fill in if someone has failed to show without prior warning. Uh, and perhaps also some modeling on the people that are volunteering if they're persistent non-shows. You know, because everyone likes to contribute to, to, to charity. It's a, it, you know, it's a, it's a good um, benevolent thing, but uh, some people may um, have a little bit of vanity in it as well, like to think that, you know, they're being the, the good person, but it's not really, you know, the first and foremost of their um, their priorities and, you know, something turns up and, you know, it's kicked out pretty quick. You know, I've, I've worked with some charities in the past and, and uh, experienced that kind of thing. Um, so, so two clear questions. One, um, forecasting your uh, your requirement for volunteers and is there any uh, seasonality or change of the requirement or is it pretty much consistent you know every day of the week it's just you need say 10 people every shift every day to kind of do this kind of thing long term and then secondly how can you deal with um, failures uh, non-shows thank you i think those those are really good Question. So on, on the first question there, um, there are a set number of required volunteers for every shift. Um, and what we're trying to predict there, Russell, is the amount of volunteers that are going to turn up, right? So some shifts, as you imagine, get filled. Other shifts are over capacity and those some shifts are under capacity. The ones that are important to us are the ones that are under capacity because those are the ones we can act on and add value by doing volunteer reach out. But there has to be kind of a way to predict whether a shift is going to be under capacity before the event occurs, right? So that's on the that's kind of on the first question. On the second question, in terms of no shows, this is probably beyond the scope of the project. And the reason I say this is you talked there briefly about 
at the at the volunteer level themselves, right? If we could identify if there are particular volunteers that don't that regularly show or regularly don't show, and to do that, you'd need data on the volunteers themselves, right? Like which we don't have, so we are limited by data there. So there are there are challenges in that we're doing this project as a kind of goodwill project. So there are time constraints. Um, it's not actually our BAU work for the organization. So we have to build a minimum viable product that you know can add some value, but we're not looking to boil the ocean. So you know we can build a tool that says, hey, volunteers, we can tell you, you know, what shifts are likely to be filled or not. But the rest is for the charity to act on those insights and try to drive um, volunteers to shifts as the tool identifies. So right now we're going from a state of the charity are just guessing and randomly kind of assigning resources to filling certain shifts, whereas we're moving to a more directed and, you know, instead of firefighting, we're, we're kind of being more proactive about it. And that's, that's kind of the goal. Go to, uh, let's go to Joe, then Eric, then Monica. Also, uh, shout out to Tor. Good to see you again, Tor. Shout out to Brandon. Good to see Brandon again. Uh, I think Brandon, uh, Brandon's got a topic that we're talking about uh, in, in some messages on LinkedIn that, uh, that you want to bring up. Uh, we, we should do that. Um, but but uh, let's, let's get through John's question here by going to Joe, then Eric, then Monica. And then if anybody else has questions, let me know. I'll go ahead and I'll add you to the queue. Um, and uh, we'll, we'll keep it moving. Oh, yeah. I think um, uh, Russell did a good job of actually uh, explaining what I was going to explain. <laughs> so, um, but, I mean, at the end of the day, this sounds a hell of a lot like a capacity planning problem. It's a classic supply chain problem. Really, it's just you got demand, you have actuals. How do you deal with the, uh, the difference, right? Um, I would just go ahead. I'd study those types of problems and just try and mimic the approaches. Uh, I wouldn't overthink it too much. It's just how much are you expecting over time? Like on Wednesday, I need, I, I'm expecting this many people. How many people show up? Okay, great. How does that affect my other forecasts? Right. So that's, that's the approach for the demand part, as Russell also points out. Um, uh, you have to look at the volunteers who don't show up. Right. And that maybe if you have enough data and you want to get fancy, do a cohort analysis of like the drop off you know, uh, over time, the churn of, um, of uh, volunteers, right? So like if, if, if there's a group of volunteers that have been with us for over a year, right? Uh, how many of them have dropped off? What, what's the rate, it, you know, and, and so forth of, of volunteers that have stood with us for a week? How many of those end up coming back the next week and so forth? I mean, that's another analysis you would do separate to understand the, the behavior of, of these uh, different buckets of, of volunteers. Um, so I'd look at it that way. And then obviously just make a list of people. I mean, if they're flaky, then just like just get don't hire them again or just tell them to try harder i don't know they're volunteers it's hard <laughs> the problem is you're not you have you have no incentive to show up right this is inherently the entire problem with the situation they're not they're not financially compensated right and unless they believe in the mission of what you're trying to do to tom's point it's a human thing as much as a technical thing so it's like you ain't paying these people they really don't owe you anything except their time and you know and given how flaky i see it, the world is right now people don't show up for even if they're getting paid a lot of money it's just so volunteer, I mean, I don't know if there's a greater chance somebody shows up if they're not getting paid than if they do get paid. Um, I'd be interested in that analysis. But I mean, as I pointed out in the chat, I mean, I ordered a, you know, a nice chair that I was expecting next week. You know, they're like, oh, we don't have any people to fulfill that. That'll be here in October, maybe. I'm like, thanks, guys. Um, but this is happening everywhere. I talk to people who have restaurants, you know, and they're paying people, whatever you pay people at restaurants, they can't find anyone to hire at this point. So they have to close their restaurant. 
So it's, you know, this is, I, I would say maybe, you know, I, I'm not sure what's going on in the world, but I, I would say just finding people who reliably show up in general is like a, if you could solve that problem, like I'm sure a lot of businesses would love to throw money at you for this uh, per branded's comment in the chat here that uh, he's looking for companies that might be, uh, you know, startups that might have like a app for volunteers. And I'd be like, well, that assumes you want to pay uh, for an app of which you're making no money to begin with. But I could see businesses paying a lot of money for this thing. because This is like the biggest problem going on. It's like, it's not so much like, you know, having to let go of workers. It's like, you cannot find anybody right now. It's insane. So, um, soapbox done. I will mute myself. Thank you. Great insight, Joe. Thank you very real, much. Real quick. This maybe just off, off, uh, first names rant, um, is, Maybe the problem same isn't like predicting how many people you need, given that like the volunteer problem is hard to figure out, like who will even show up is maybe predicting like which events will be a failure or events will have like all the no shows where you can't do it. And just shifting the perspective a little bit is rather than predicting how many people you need, just whether or not an event will happen or not. And I feel like that potentially simplifies it a bit more um, or it could be more complicated. I don't know. I'm coming this blind, but Essentially, just like it gives you another option to provide that. And that still provides them the solution of like, hey, this event's going to be in danger. Reorganize your resources or something. Yeah, I, I, I take both points. Um, so we have, um, I'll, I'll, I'll start with Joe kind of insights and I'll move on to what you were saying, Mark, there. So, um, Joe, I think you quite rightly pointed out that so many things kind of impact whether, whether how many volunteers you're going to get, right? So that's kind of where our approach has been in terms of trying to treat these volunteer show-ups as a random variable, which means there's a probability distribution attached to them somehow. So that's kind of the approach is to understand using the data, look at the data to understand the probability distribution of the amount of volunteers that turn up for, say, a warehouse shift, you know, across all the data we have, and then fit a, a probability density function that can help us simulate who turns up to warehouse shifts. Um, Mark, on your point, we have looked at several different angles of, you know, what our target variable is. And we came to the conclusion that we don't think that it's a standard machine learning problem in the sense of here's a label, here's some data, fit your model to the data based on your label. Um, there's several, there's kind of several reasons for that. One thing is kind of feedback. Um, so briefly, what we may, what we mean by feedback is if we tell a if we tell a volunteer manager, right, based on this data, um, no one shows up to this shift. When they act on that, the next time that data feeds through the model, the model tells them, well, this shift gets filled, right? But that's only because they've acted on it. So, you know, that's why that kind of supervised learning approach we we explored it and we realized that maybe it's not the best approach to solve this particular problem. And on on this. Um, just to kind of close the point, Joe, there, I, what you're talking about is kind of like a gap in people that have the right skills to fill positions. And I'll say now, like, we're not, we're not trying to, we're not trying to solve all of the problems of the charity with this tool. This tool is really just going to be a minimum viable product just to solve this one issue of guide, guiding um, action, really. That's it. We don't claim to, we, we don't even claim that, you know, once we release this tool that, you know, then all their volunteer management problems are going to go away because it is deeper than that, right? It's it, there's there's more to it than that. So yeah, point taken on 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 that area as well. Real real quick, if I may, Harper. Yeah. Um, John, I think you're demonstrating good thinking here. We we're having fun in the chat over here. There's some good stuff there. 
Um, just the spirit of this is a, a talk Greg Quio and I developed together. It's a spirit of imagine you've got this matrix, you've got your business triage needs, and you've got your current data assets. And for one approach, one modeling approach, uh, you may not have the data you need because a lot of us were sitting around, boy, wouldn't it be nice if you had data on each individual human's reliability in this realm? Well, you, you may not have that, but you can start with an inferior model that does something better than you know, statistics. And then you can start collecting data with the tools Jay is mentioning and others. It doesn't mean just because you don't have the data assets you need right now, doesn't mean you can't start collecting them to get a better model in the future. Yeah, no, completely, completely agree with that. Like, and that is kind of part of the longer term plan is to inform them, to inform the, the, the organization we're working with on what data should they should consider collecting. Um, there's a cost to collecting data as well. So because they're a charity that kind of sits on their side in terms of, you know, the, that's that's kind of a decision above our station, really. That's kind of more for the, the, the leaders of the charity to decide whether they want to spend on, you know, infrastructure to start recording that type of data. But yes, I, I completely agree. Awesome. Uh, Eric or Monica, do you guys still want to uh, uh, contribute here? If so, let me know. I will say something that take me like 45 seconds. Yeah. So uh, a, a couple months ago, I had to do something a little similar with predicting, predicting stuff. And yeah, like machine learning would have been cool, but I just didn't have, I didn't have enough data for it really. And so all I did was take volume day by day volume, or I guess you could take shift by shift volume by location or whatever. And I just did like a two week, you know, I looked at if today is Friday, I looked at the last two Fridays and weighted the most recent Friday, a little heavier than the Friday before that to try and predict tomorrow or I guess today or, you know, Saturday or whatever. And then, you know, if, because it was available, there was like, there's like, we have like a little seasonality table that we could say, okay, well, you know, July is a little higher. April is a little lower and, you know, just like you could have like a spring, summer, fall, uh, just hard coded in same thing with day of the week where it's like weekends, people are twice as likely. And so I just put in a, you know, a Saturday, Sunday modifier and a Monday through Friday modifier and just hard code everything in and works just fine. And I'm, we got done way faster than if I would have tried to throw stuff that I barely understand at it. So anyway, you could do that in Excel if you want to. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks Eric. That's, um, insightful definitely and yeah um again you know we aren't trying to overcomplicate it um you know we've we've cycled through several approaches and uh yeah and seasonal trends is something we're definitely looking at in the exploratory data analysis if anything that's going to give us the level of granularity at least we need to start looking at those probability distributions as well so yeah thanks Monica. Yeah, very similar to Eric, I was um, analyzing safety incidents for a utility company from a historical perspective and just to see, you know, uh, days of the week or certain months, um, if there are any trends, spikes in safety incidents, or in this case, um, not enough volunteers, then to bring in that human aspect of, in my case, um, training those individuals um, during those times, or um, in this case, you know, if you don't have enough individuals during a particular month, maybe doing a marketing campaign or calling past volunteers to say, hey, you know, just to get it out there and see if that brings in more volunteers, because you know, you know, on Fridays, you won't have a lot of volunteers get ahead of that. Thanks, Monica. So, John, you got a ton of good advice here. Like, 
45 minutes worth of good advice. So go back and listen to this. And, uh, and there's a ton of, uh, uh, stuff here in the chat. Let me know if you want me to send you the uh, text file for the chat. Happy to do that. Uh, let's keep it moving to, uh, let's go to Mark's question. Then after Mark, we will go to Dwayne and then Muhammad has a couple of questions. Uh, but Mark, go for it. Awesome. Thank you. I also want to note too, like this conversation before and the question was so great. Like I really felt like it mimicked a lot of the work as a data scientist. There's like the same conversations I have with my colleagues going back and forth with different ideas. So it was really yep. cool. Yep. For for my question, kind of similar vein machine learning, but with a caveat is that I'm not trying to send off a model. I'm trying to teach others <laughs> about machine learning. And so uh, I have four mentees that I signed up through this pro program and we're learning about Python and R. And so we're working on machine learning problems together. I found this really, this amazing researcher collected all this data in Brazil, public sources of like infant mortality within 28 days, which is a really standard 28 days standard in healthcare and cleaned up the data where it's a, a, an amazing data set for machine learning. It has like 30 different data features um, classified did they did, did was a mortality zero one for the infants. It's over a million rows. It's really amazing. And so essentially it's an imbalanced classification problem uh, for healthcare. The key thing is that we're not trying to ship it. We're not trying to show like this is what's happening, some research thing. I'm just trying to teach people like how about machine learning as like one of their first projects. And so with that in mind, thinking about imbalanced classification problems. What do you think are some core things or foundations that you would wish you learned when you were learning about this, uh, about machine learning? So I can just better teach th this concept. I have some ideas, but I would love to speak to the mastermind of data science here to figure out how I can make that even better. So you, so the teachable moment here is, is it, how do I teach my uh, mentees about the uh, perils of, of imbalanced data? Is that like the message you're trying to get across to them? That and also just so they get experience, like their first project of like, oh, cool, I implement a machine learning model. That's horrible accuracy, but I did it once. And so now I, I got past that curve and then let's work through that. And I'm going to post the data set as well um, in the chat. So people just have an idea. It's a really cool um, data set or really important data set <laughs> to work with. Is that their first like ever machine learning model? Like so I got a mixed bag of mentees. Some of them have done machine learning before. The others is like their first time ever. So it was like trying to find something in between for them. I think, uh, Harpreet, if I may. Yes, please. Uh, please. I, I mean, I know you're, you're trying to throw them right in the water, but just off of what I heard from you, I don't know if that's kind of like what I would act upon if you give me like really hard problem um, that nobody like it's unbalanced and you know you predict something and it gives me like 30 like i don't know 50 percent whatever it is uh so i don't know how i mean you know them better than i do right so maybe that's what motivates them that kind of like hard love <laughs> um but also i think think about uh, the domain that you're teaching them meaning like are they passionate about this project um, I know yes, what we're we're all okay. healthcare. So you know, okay. finding healthcare data is hard. So right. was, yeah. <laughs> yeah, because when I when I started, I remember my first project the professor introduced me to was the simplest Titanic data set that everybody knows, right? And he's like, Antonio, did you know if you were on the Titanic, you'll drown? I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, how do you know this? You know, and he's like, Well, there's this thing called machine learning and based on your demographic data predicts that you're going to drown. And to me, that was like, all right, I've seen the movie, you know, I don't want to like die on the Titanic. 
So that kind of got me into it. But it was also like simple enough where I would build something and it gives me like a 95% or 90 whatever percent prediction uh, score and kind of get me motivated. Uh, ben Taylor, who's on this call, he always tells me like, even if you want to give him a hard project, also give him some wins. If you want to stick with your project, maybe like, okay, this is a hard project, but we're going to celebrate once the data's clean. If you create five features, we're going to have a celebrate. So maybe the, the end goal in the model is not going to be that great, but making sure you have some, some milestones along the way, I think to keep them motivated, I think it would help you because just being like, just predict this and they, they get lost. I, uh, that might be a little demotivating. Uh, at least that's based on my personality. Hey, um, oh, Mark, I've, I've, okay. I've got something to kind of add to that as well, right? So you talked about accuracy there, which I think is very interesting, especially for imbalanced classification problems. So what I would say is get them to pay particular attention to evaluation and the confusion matrix. So especially in healthcare, that's really important because obviously having false positives false negatives in healthcare means something completely different than it does to say what I'm doing, right? Because that the impact of that is huge. So I would say just a lot of focus on evaluating the results of a machine learning model, because the reality is like with cloud computing, you know, tools like Amazon SageMaker, you can build models very quickly using auto ML, but not everybody understands the what a model is doing and what um, the, the results of that of that model. And I'd, I'd say that's that's probably the most important thing, especially in our healthcare domain. So imbalanced classification, focus particularly on getting them to understand what the confusion matrix is is telling them about that, about that um, model. That's good, As yeah. you know, with an imbalanced classification, if you just say yes, 100% of the time, your accuracy is going to be quite high, isn't it? Right? So yeah, and that, that was that was another thing that made me excited about this data set. It was like it, get, it serves a great example, especially in healthcare. The first question I asked, like, what's the cost of a false uh, false negative, and like, how can we frame this problem where the re we give our end result mm -hmm. um, that's actually something beneficial um, and not going to cause more harm, right? So I, I really love that that point. And also, I just want to note in the comments, people are saying to create a, a balanced data set, to create a sample, and I'm totally going to implement that, and that's a great idea. Let's uh, let's go to uh, I, that might have been Nisha's comment that she was talking about. Uh, but Nisha, go ahead and uh, uh, you have some great comments in here. Then after Nisha, we'll go to uh, Tom. Uh, and then anybody else wants to uh, to jump in here, definitely Brandon. Love to hear your thoughts on this as well. Uh, Nisha, are you still here? Yes, yeah. you are. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I am mentoring uh, some mentees from back India as well. Um, we are. We are working on a machine learning problem, um, not in healthcare, but uh, Kaggle data set. Uh, I felt like that was the easiest way to go about introducing it, um, just because we were of di different domain. But in your case, you said everyone has the healthcare experience. So in that case, I have, my suggestion would be to create a subset that is a balanced data set from the main one to uh, bring them up to speed on the basic concepts, especially the confusion matrix, the true positive sensitivity, sen specificity, all those trade-offs. And the other thing next, when you implement the imbalanced uh, classification model, the thing to look out for would be the uh, sampling techniques. The sampling te techniques come um, in place. Many people do not really know how to 
modify your model when you use a sampling technique. If you see even the uh, literature for research on this area, they use a sampling technique, but they do not modify their regular, even say, let's say, regression model, because the equation changes when you do a sampling, um, resampling. So that's something probably might be um, to be aware of um, if you are teaching them something on imbalanced classification. But my suggestion would be to go with the balanced classification, make it easy on them, get that spark going. Tom, go for it. Yeah, um, thanks. I, I was feeling left out because there's a chat going on with memes about the Titanic. And I got a confession. I've never seen the movie. So thank you for letting me talk so I could do something. No, seriously, Yogita is spot on. Some others are emphasizing start with a simple balanced data set because we have to create a pipeline. We have to create our tool set. But I want to just say something I didn't hear anyone mention yet. If you think of each mechanism we have in the pipeline, we've got our cleaning, we've got our scaling, we've got our feature reduction, we've got our feature engineering. We might add PCA if we need it. But at each element in the pipeline, we can try different things, different scaling methods different different things along the way. And one of the uh, things we can try is, uh, especially in classification problems, if we're having to fill it in, you, you've got the random sampling like people have mentioned, but you've got smoke. There's, there's different things you can do. You dial in different mechanisms, but, and I feel like, man, I, I'm not criticizing anyone here, but Manjanoff and I are, are the ones that really, we like if we see each other post on this, we're like, yes, Listen to this. We, we need to remember to encourage people to use cross-fold validation as much as you can. Why? Because you're not just looking for the most accurate model across all the folds. You're looking for the least, the tightest distribution of accuracies across the folds. That's a big signal that you're generalizing well with your model. And by dialing in different methods of uh uh, balancing the data set, you you can see which one's going to work best if you do that type of hard metric work. I hope that made sense. If it didn't, oh, thanks, Serge. Serge, <laughs> yeah. oh, he probably put that in his book. <laughs> no, it de it definitely did, and I appreciate because again, I I I'm writing Google Collab Notebook like tutorials for them, and we do them together in our sessions. And so when I started on this one, I I kind of hit a block. I was like, whoa. This is a little yeah. too intense. Let me go get some advice to figure out how to yeah. scale this back for them. So I'm, I'm so happy I talked to y'all because I, I think um, you know, I, you, I'm going to get something really good for them now. If you start with that intense of a pipeline, you will overwhelm them. But if you do it in little steps, they'll go, oh, yeah, that makes sense. It's like telling them to jump over the canyon right away. But yeah. if you I'll, walk down, yeah. I was about to say, I was want to get some feedback as well. One idea I had, and just this can try and think teaching um, you know, getting over that that hurdle of like, oh, machine learning is so advanced, like there's no way I can do it, right? Um, I want to get past that hurdle. And the idea was like, hey, we're gonna implement a machine learning model on this really bad data. The model's gonna be horrible, but you're just gonna implement something. And so you did machine learning once, right? Would that be throwing them too much in the deep end? Or do you think that's gonna be like okay, like yeah, huh? I think so. I mean, echo what Tom's saying. I would say like. Take that approach, but start them with a balanced data set, like a super easy yeah. one, actually. Like it, it, it's a dead simple set. And then mess that data set up, like make it really mm -hmm. imbalanced, but use the same data set, but just this is their second time doing machine learning. And now they're going to see that, oh, geez, that, that, that approach I took that first time doesn't seem to work the second time. Gee, what happened? 
Um, well, do some stats on your data set, figure out, you know, propensity labels and, and, and so forth. Uh, look at your confusion matrix. That was brought up a lot too. I think, okay, look at how imbalanced all of a sudden the predictions are. And then, geez, um, to Tom's point, how would we go about solving this problem then, right? If, if, if the number of representative samples are, um, uh, have declined a significant amount, and I'd ask the student this way, what do, you, what do you think would be some ways that we could, we could solve this problem? How would you, how would you think about this? I, when, I, when I teach, I always try and let, leave it open-ended for the student to figure out, right? Where it's like, you know, I'm going to give you some hints. I'm going to give you some approaches. But at the end of the day, like, um, let's come up with a way to, to make sure that you can, um, uh, you know, either, either resample correctly or come up with a better proportion of, of, um, of labels such that you're not constantly dealing with this, uh, you know, kind of this accuracy paradox. Yeah. Which no, I, I mean yeah. that term very literally in the, in the, in the most classical sense of, of prediction. So definitely. Oh my yeah. gosh. Thank you so much. Again, like going from just doing data science to teaching others, like a whole other ball game. So I appreciate this advice so much. Yeah. Some great, great tips. Uh, Brandon, what do you think? Yeah, I was just typing. Yeah, th you could build up on this, right? Because just the I saw in the comments, some people were saying you could even inject fake data, right? Mess up the data in some way, right? Because you're trying to figure out how generalizable a model is. You can build all the way to drop off, right? Isn't this what dropout does in neural networks, right? You're trying to get it to be more generalized. So you're dropping off, you're setting ones to zeros randomly. And then that has the equivalent of like ensembling a bunch of neural nets in one training run. So you can even go all the way to that kind of a concept just by starting with the basics. And a quick add here. I, I, if you guys haven't followed my fake data posts, uh, let me know and I, I'll send you the notebooks, whatever. If It's like Joe's emphasizing, if you, and, and many of you, if you start with that basic set that you know how to create fake noise, fake errors, fake data problems, the world's your oyster in machine learning. You don't have to wait till you find data problems in real world data sets to harden your set, but you have another advantage because you created the problems. You already know in advance what answers your model should get. You, you have like the solution manual, which we don't ever have in real world, real world problems to tell you your pipeline's not really doing the best thing yet. And then you can fix it with the known answers and work backwards. Now throw the real data at it. You have a better clue about how to modify the data as you go through to get to more accurate predictions. Thank you very much. Ben, what about you? Any any uh, thoughts on on this topic? Hey, sorry. I was looking at GPU stuff. <laughs> yes, that, that's also an option. Uh, uh, deep learning with uh, TensorFlow and some TPUs. GPUs. What's the, what's the What's the quick summary of the question that was asked? Mark, quick summary. Essentially, essentially, I have a few mentees that I did this program. I'm teaching them just how to code and do machine oh. learning, just simple stuff. I found a data set that's pretty pretty good for, for learning. It's pretty cleaned up already, uh, but it's an imbalanced classification problem. Still real-world data. And so just advice on like, what's the best way to bring someone up to speed? Not necessarily like make this the best like solution ever, but teach them so they get excited and fill that spark for data science. Yeah. Okay. So I, I heard that question. I, I thought maybe a new one was thrown in there. So Mark, one of the things I like to do with new students is really try to light a fire under them with personal passion projects. Because what you want is you want them to go off the next week and say, hey, Mark, guess what I tried? Guess what I tried on the weekend? I tried this thing. A lot of times like AI on the edge, you know, NVIDIA, Jetson, Nano, like stuff like this. 
can really wake them up. And the hope is like, and how, how did it go? And they tell you, Oh, it kicked my ass. Like Saturday I had all these issues. I traded web scrape. It didn't work. Like you, you always want them to kind of run into the weeds and that's, but it, the passion will help them kind of muscle through it. So I, I'm a huge believer in that just because that's the issue. A lot of these casual data sets are too clean. They're not real. So throw them into the real world and have them a reason, uh, give them a reason to swim. Awesome. No, thankfully, uh, all of them are healthcare background and we found a real world data set for uh, healthcare, um, which is pretty cool. And, and that's awesome too, because healthcare in itself is inspiring. Like, you know, what, especially if you can get access to like patient level data or something where it's like, no, if you do this, it'll actually make a difference. And that patient level, it's wild. It's yeah. wild. public data set from Brazil. I don't know. It's, it's public. So nice. Hey, um, Mark, is there is um, auto ML a bad word here? I think it, I, I would love to teach them that, but I think it's outside the scope uh, of it because we're doing a Google Collab notebooks. And I think that would just be like a lot going on <laughs> to all of a sudden switch gears for auto ML. Yeah. But I would love, but what's your thought on that? Because maybe I'm missing something and I would love to hear your perspective. Right. So I know that a lot of people aren't necessarily comfortable coding machine learning models from scratch, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you can't be an effective data scientist, right? So currently what we're trying to do is we're trying to leverage AutoML where we can solve some of the common machine learning use cases very quickly. So if you're teaching a group of newbies to machine learning and data science, right? Why not leverage AutoML? It will build a model for them. And then you could focus on the outputs of the model. You know, what, how well does this model actually perform? You know, what does a confusion matrix look like? What is a confusion matrix? Because sometimes I think you can get overwhelmed with A, learning how to actually code a model up in Python, which is, you know, bandwidth for your brain. And then on top of that, trying to digest the actual concepts behind machine learning, um, which are, you know, exist outside of coding, right? You know, that's all kind of math and stats. Sorry. Equate auto ML to um, learning ML, I suppose, kind of like the difference between learning how to drive a car and like taking the bus. Like, I think taking a bus will get you most of the way there, depending on the route. That's like auto ML, right? Like it'll get you in a direction most of the time, but it depends on what your goals are, right? If you want to learn to drive, it's kind of like, probably the approach you're taking is fine. So I think, I think the main skills, I want to give them the skill set where they can know how to set up a, a, their own technical project and repeat this process over and over again in the future. So that, they, that way that like, you have an idea, they have the, the toolbox to set it up themselves. Just very briefly, guys, more than 20 years ago, engineering managers that needed um, strength of materials analysis done or failure analysis done were all excited that finite element packages were getting easier to use. And they thought, oh, we don't need to hire an expensive engineer. We can just get someone to run this software for us. Bad mistake. It takes knowledge to clean data. AutoML doesn't do everything. And the sexiest thing we do is clean data and go talk, get up out of our chairs and go talk to the data management entry system programmers to say, please don't let that field be uh, nullable. I, I, I need that data. Uh, please do a type check on this data. I don't want to continue to have to maintain my code to convert these strings. But then what happens when AutoML fails? and the person using it doesn't have a clue why. You know, yes, you don't have to be an automobile designer to drive a car, but um, 
what we're doing is not that. And if the ML breaks down, it's sure better to have a data scientist at the helm that knows what the heck's going on under that hood. You know, if we've worked at AutoML startups before, building AutoML systems. I mean, Ben and I have a common relationship in this regard. Um, I will say that um, the problem, the problem, the main problem with AutoML that has not disappeared since I was working on this back almost 10 years ago is the fact that um, your data set, the data set that you provide your AutoML, uh, if it's a structured data set, especially, it's um, that's that's the complete linchpin with whether AutoML is going to work. It, it's the input. If your data set is great, you might get something, but at the end of the day, it comes out of domain expertise. I, I mean, I've worked on more AutoML projects for clients than I can care to count. I've, I've worked on probably more machine learning projects than I would care to describe at this point. And it's like, I, I, 100% of the time when you're dealing with structured data, it has to deal with um, the data set that's been provided. So if it's been built, if that data set's been built by somebody with the domain expertise to build a good data set, then I think you're home clean, you know, but at the same time, if it's just some random data set that you throw in, uh, I don't know, it's going to be a very random result. I wouldn't say it. if you, if you, if it, if it predicts well, it's because you were lucky, not because it, uh, you, you did great work. And I'm dead serious about this. I've seen, I've seen machine learning models where I'm like, it works because it randomly works. It works not because the data had any signal in it at all. Quite the contrary. Like you're lucky it works and it will implode at some point. And you'll, but you won't know that it, you know, when it implodes. So anyway, soapbox uh, off. But I, I think that that you do need the domain expertise at Tom's point, right? It, it never goes away. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Mark, how are you feeling about those inputs? My gosh, I'm I'm set up for success now. I'm super excited this week. Don't get too Ryan. eager. I'm just kidding. <laughs> right yeah, no, I'm I'm Ryan. I'm Ryan to tutorials. Let me put it like this. I'm excited because I feel like I just I just uh you know avoided a huge landmine in teaching them. Uh and so very excited about that. There's probably some more out there, but it's all a learning process. And I'm just happy to get this feedback. And I can just I'm just my goal is I'm just trying to make it as fun as possible for these students. Right on. I, I'm encouraged too that the uh, data robot evangelist, the AI evangelist, blessed our current heresies, uh, Joe. Again, not against AutoML, but how to handle AutoML. Properly. Oh, Ben and I have known each other a long time. He he uh, he gets it. He, trust me. <laughs> so. I so again, I get a sense that AutoML is a bad word for yourselves, Tom and Joe. Not really. No. 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 And in fact, I, I love AutoML. Uh, especially when you're talking about images and and uh, I think things that are not like, here's where I make a distinction. I think AutoML really works well. Um, I kind of rhymed. Um, we could pull them out of that. Um, but it, it works nicely on um, problems where you're dealing with unstructured data. So images, um, uh, audio, basically things where you can take a, a set of say pixels and unwind them into a vector and then feed that into a, a, a neural net, for example. That's actually a much simpler problem to solve than feeding structured uh, data from a business system uh, into an AutoML program. Like, like classifying images and, and uh, audio and stuff, I say, is actually a far easier problem to solve than structured data. And so I think AutoML works great for a lot of those use cases, especially when you're dealing with pre-trained uh, models where you can just do transfer learning, for example, uh, you know, going to a Google Cloud, for instance, just using their AutoML for like image classification. It works most of the time. And if their pre-trained stuff doesn't work, then you know they got enough robustness behind it. Uh, but I've not seen the same success with structured data sets, where it's tabular. Like that that tends to like implode in itself for the very reason I just described. Every random, 
every structured data set is different. And, and for you to, to figure out whether or not there's linearizability in, in your data, for example, whether or not you can pick up any signal with your features is a much different story just because it's inherently random human generated data, not, not pixelated. So sorry, Tom, what are you gonna say? Actually, I was too busy making the fun jokes in the chat about Joe being a rapper and a poet and a heretic and all of those fun things. But it's the spirit um, of, uh, and I think Brandon was echoing what I was saying about the finite element stuff. It's a spirit of what is AutoML good for, John? It's good in the hands of a data scientist to help them go faster because it, it would be like asking a non-violinist, oh, this is the best violin ever made. Here, play it. Ah, I need a lot of training. You know, AutoML helps a good data scientist go faster because they know how to employ it. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I definitely agree with that. Like, um, that's kind of my sentiment on it as well. Yeah, when you're working with these tabular structured data sets, like the reason classical machine learning works so well is because of the features that you engineer. That so you're building out the complexity using subject matter expertise and domain knowledge to help a model learn. Um, yeah, so backing up Joe's Joe's point there. Awesome, Mark. A lot of great insight there for you, my, my man. Uh, let's continue moving on. I got questions coming in from LinkedIn. This. <laughs> interesting question from Dwayne. Uh, it, might, it might entice a riot. Uh, data science or data engineering, which is easier and why? Uh, if I could riff off some posts that I think Andre Burkhoff made a while ago, if you have to ask that question, then you probably shouldn't be in the field. Uh, just saying that, but uh, who wants to take a stab at this? Data science or data engineering, which is easier and why? Um, Joe? I mean, I can, I can speak to this because I've done both. So... <laughs> I don't know, man. I, I think it's a, it's a tricky question to answer because I think it depends on the background that you're coming from. So yeah. I don't know that I could, you know, you can't universally say like one's easier than the other. It would it'd be like saying that it's just, it's a hard one to answer, but I would say, you know, I, I will, I'll use this litmus test. If you have, like, I think a strong math background or a strong analytical background, data science is going to be easier. If you have a stronger um, uh, software engineering background, data engineering is going to be easier just because it has the word engineering in it. I'm kidding. Uh, because it, you have systems thinking, right? And this yep. is a different type of thinking than uh, analytical, um, you know, mathematical thinking. They're similar, but different. Um, that said, I, I think that both of these um, fields, because of the way that tooling is being abstracted in both fields, um, and maybe the, the roles that you might enter as a data scientist or data engineer, I think this is also changing. Um, the role of a data engineer, I would say, is becoming less about engineering and more about um, uh, higher levels of abstraction and uh, governing data. I was actually just talking to um, uh, a CEO of a, a, a up and coming big name tech startup about this, a data startup, and we're, we're both in agreement. I think data engineering over the next several years is actually going to be more about old school stuff like data governance, data management, and less and less about data pipelines. I think that's a very much a solved problem. You can you can find products that just do this. Um, and so, you know, it's, you're moving up the value chain in that regard, but data science is, it's the same thing. You know, we just talked about auto ML and I think there's also, um, libraries are increasingly making the role of a data scientist much easier back when, um, you know, Ben Taylor and I were cutting our teeth in machine learning that weren't really libraries and that you had to, uh, you know, it's a proverbial hand-drawn cart. It was a much different time. Um, now everything's very easy. And so I think the, the role of a, a data scientist is going to change too, to being more of a domain expert with excellent analytical and mathematical skills. And so to know where the puck is going, I would say in that regard, to diagnose where you would want to fit into the, um, the world, but to make, to make 
to, to answer it, there, there's not really an answer. I would say it more depends on what you want to do in your uh, temperament. So Yeah, I think that's like, honestly, the only right answer to that question. Uh, I would have answered along the same lines. Uh, so let's keep it moving. A couple other questions coming in. So Dwayne, hopefully uh, you you are listening still. Uh, that's a great response. And I'm sure a lot of us probably would have agreed on that. And if, uh, if anybody wants to chime in on that particular question, let me know. Otherwise, I will move on to the next one. All right, cool. Let's move on to the next one then. Uh, next one, the question is coming from Mohammed on LinkedIn. Uh, any recommended resources for people starting data science and machine learning and they want to familiarize themselves with computer science jargon, uh, something that would help people with absolutely no background in computer science. I don't think you need a background in computer science to get started in data science, but I would just say there's probably uh, two books I'd recommend in your situation. One would be Hands-On Machine Learning with Scikit-Learn and TensorFlow, and the other one, uh, Pandas for uh, Data Analysis, that was written by Wes McKinney, the guy who created Pandas. I think you read those two books and if you really want to get you can talk about computer science jargon uh grokking algorithms that would probably be a resource i'd recommend as well uh, you're hurting dave and andy's feelings right now i can why sorry i thought maybe you were seeing the chat someone mentioned no. pragmatic programmer mark freeman did oh, yes uh yeah 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 so uh pragmatic programmer yes that is also a good book um heads up keep an eye out for the uh, interview i have coming very soon with the author of that book uh, Mark, go for it. Oh, I was just going to mention the pragmatic programmer. Um, I yeah. I, re I go back to it all the time just to pick up on some good coding habits, but um, more, more or less like the jargon, but more so like the thinking of a programmer. I read that book and I was like, oh, wow, I've been approaching my code the wrong way <laughs> for a long yeah. time. Uh, so it's, it's really good. Yeah, that's a definitely a good book. Uh, Andy Hunt is amazing. Um, uh, his other book, well, he's got many books, but Pragmatic Program, but the other one was Pragmatic Thinking and Learning, which is all about just how to learn and develop and just get better. It's such a good book. Had an epic conversation with him months ago, and that conversation will probably be released probably at this point, uh, a year after I recorded it, uh, but soon. Subscribe to the podcast, mm -hmm. keep listening. Uh, John says, Computer Science Distilled by uh, Waldston Ferreira Filho. Um, might be a good one for you. Um, there you go, Mohammed, on that question. Uh, well, can I chime in here? Oh yeah, absolutely, please. So I'll do my normal thing, which I, I seem to do every time here, is that uh, if you can set yourself with a team uh, with data engineers, software engineers, business owner kind of person, business analyst, and and yourself and you know maybe a few more data scientists. And I, I do most of my learning that way just because I joined an integrated team where everybody has the same goal, uh, as opposed to like, you don't meet until the SVP level, which I've been in those kinds of orgs too. Um, here, me, myself, the data engineer, everybody I just mentioned, we report essentially to the same person and it just makes uh, everything easier. I learned so much about software engineering from those people. I thought I knew about software engineering until, <laughs> until I worked with them that I realized I don't really know much at all. I was actually gonna go to you next, Brandon, for your question. You have a great question that I feel like it's gonna spark off a really good, um, really good discussion. So please go for it. Okay. Yeah. So we were talking earlier about you start with a problem that you think is a data science problem. And then everybody jumps in saying, you know, this is a people problem. This isn't, and I jumped in, so this is an organizational problem. And this happens a lot. I think depending on your situation, if you're you know, in a startup or a big group, small group, et cetera, but I wanted to know other people's experiences on you joined a, a company or a project thinking it was going to be all data science and you're doing your work and you're thinking, you know what? 
it, this would be a lot easier if like, let's say the healthcare workers entered the data more cleanly, or in my case, it is the customer support people. You're supposed to say this is a duplicate issue when it is, and they don't always do that. And it's throwing off my machine learning. And it's like, I can't even do machine learning anymore because the, the, the data is too messy. In any case, um, there's like this debate about people saying, well, you know what? This is real life data science. This is data science in real life. And then there's other people saying, this isn't data science and maybe you, you know, this company's not ready for you. You should go to a, a team or something where they're more mature. So I just wanted to know at what point do people start thinking, um, you know, maybe this isn't data science. I should look for something else. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we're having a, a, a conversation about this offline in, in, in messages, you know, when we're talking about how I left uh, Price just a week ago. And it became that situation where it was like, uh, it was not, there's literally not data science anymore. Like I, I joined the company and I did a machine learning project and people love the results of the machine learning project. It did well, but it turned out that in order for me to do any more machine learning, I would have had to done like the data governance and all that type of stuff. And it was turned into a situation where like, shit, you guys probably hired me uh, wrong hire in the pipeline. Like I, data scientist should have been like the third or fourth data professional you hired. Uh, in this in this pipeline, and it became it, it just it, it just became a role that just did not resonate with me anymore because I did not want to do data management or anything like that. And um, I don't know if I'm answering your question. I'm just kind of going off on a tangent, but uh, I guess once it gets to the point where it's like, all right, well, you know, you hired me for a particular capability, and like now you're putting me in work that is not reflecting my true ability to execute and do something good um, or something meaningful. So you know, for me to move on look for another role that type of thing um i think this is common Hartford. yeah yeah definitely it's super common i mean there, there's a lot of bait and switch i would say in data science um i mean that that's it's, it's a popular honeypot right i mean it, what better way to get smart people in the door than just throw up a data science wanted sign and then let them all apply whether or not that that's actually what they'll be doing um i mean i i've i've personally been hired into roles like this where you know it was expected that you'd be a doing data science it's like i'm doing everything except that right now um and so i think a lot of it comes down brandon i would say to like you know it's it's a tough one right because i i, I there's some situations i think where people don't know what to expect out of a data science but they'll, that, that'll be in, like it's heartbreak indicated that instead of being the third or fourth hire that's like the first hire they make we, we saw this a lot back especially um I would say starting around 2015 2016 when you know the ai hype cycle was like starting to take off and um, everyone felt like they needed a data scientist, um, you know, and so you'd, you'd see a lot of hires, including myself and probably other people here. And I, I can't say that that was the best hire at the time. You, you don't need that. I mean, I started a whole company around this, this fact, right? That's the reason I call myself a recovering data scientist. It's because I, I don't think that half the time, half the jobs I did, I don't think I, I was needed at that stage, you know, but I think they needed a data engineer or somebody to help set the foundation upon which to do data science. Yeah. But you know that to, to say that it, to expect that a data scientist is going to come in and just solve all your problems, I think is it's a bit ludicrous. And thankfully, you know, more and more companies seem to be catching on to this. But it took a long time and probably you know countless expense to, to get to this point, this realization. Um, but it's, it still happens. I mean, we still rescue a lot of companies, you know, and, and help them hire data engineers after they hired a team of data scientists. They're like, oh, geez, I don't, these guys this might not have been the best decision. And the data scientists agree. They're like, we don't know why you hired us. We're here, we'll happily collect our paychecks, but I mean, uh, we, we want to be productive, right? I mean, because there's a sense of worth in, in, in your job as well. It's not just showing up to, to collect a paycheck, but people want to have an impact. So, and I'm sure you saw this heartbreak, right? Like you, you went into this company with great intentions and, and whatnot, but unfortunately it just, 
you know, the timing is probably just wasn't there. So exactly. Uh, Mark, you have some good comments here in the chat. You want to go for it? Oh, I I, I did it. Sorry. Oh, <laughs> that was for okay. something else. Yeah. Okay. I've, I've uh, gone inside on this because I, like I said, I've just kind of recently started as a, as a lead data scientist and I'm, I'm the first one in. I am literally building the team from scratch. We're trying to digitally transform the organization. And yeah, I'm finding that, you know, four months into the job, I've not done a real single bit of data science in the traditional sense. A lot of it has been around regulation, governance. You know, we're trying to set up a cloud platform, um, you know, and there's a lot of internal inertia because of just the, the we're, we're operating in a regulated environment. But I think that's the, that is the reality of a lot of data science jobs. Um, that is, that is what it is. And like people have expressed, it is very common. So I think maybe you kind of almost need to redefine what you define yourself as data science and see whether that is realistic in the job roles that you're applying to or the job roles that you're partaking in. So kind of my new kind of definition of data science is what can I do with data um, to help the business achieve its goals? So sometimes it's not always machine learning. You know, it could be some kind of, some form of higher level statistical analysis that could help the business make a strategic decision, right? So like machine learning is usually automating decisions at scale, usually. Um, if you wanted to just make one key decision, you don't necessarily need like a machine learning model operating at scale for that. You could do, you know, you could do a Bayesian network, you could do some causal inference, and you know, that could drive a, a decision as well. And that's adding value. And you're not kind of doing data science in the traditional sense that uh, I imagine a lot of people view it. Uh, causal inference and Bayesian networks are cool. Shout out to Judea Pearl. Also, shout out to the co author, Dana mm. McKenzie. You can tune into that podcast episode with the uh, co-author of the book of why uh, again some point not in the near future but it, it's coming uh al talk to us man talk to us you, you you've you're able to sniff out a situation and uh and save yourself from it yeah i don't i don't know for sure um but it definitely once you guys started talking about it, it uh yeah i got a an offer a couple of weeks ago i actually sought out uh tom to talk through it and uh there were a couple offers that came in all at once. And so it was, uh, I was, you know, my 24 years in, in the military, I was not used to any of that. So I needed uh, some sage advice. So um, one of them was a, it was a data scientist position by title. And I went into the interview, like the company, I applied for a different position that was an analyst position. The company said, we'd like to put you in for this other job. I said, okay. And it was just like whirlwind, like immediate. Next day I was in, um, an interview with a board and I looked at the job description. I was just like, I, I might have like 30% of the, the technical skills that you're looking for. And so I just went into the, the board and just like, Hey, I'm not going to lie to anybody. If they ask about these other skills, I'm happy to learn as quickly as I humanly can, but uh, it's just not something I possess. And so um, they didn't really ask about it. And it, it quickly became apparent that um, the skills that I had that they needed was military experience, the ability to speak to senior officers, um, and and a, an ability to lead and organize, um, which is fine. Um, I've worked hard on those things, and they're they're good skills, and I'll use them again. Um, the issue for me was it was not I was not going to be a data scientist. I was going to be in charge of some kind of low level staff data scientists who were doing some 
code stuff and some, you know, sprinkle some ML and AI on things. But it was not, it, not only was it not going to be me being a data scientist, it was going to be me in a supervisory position for which I, I didn't feel equipped. And I felt like there was going to be enough work that it was going to rob me of the chance to uh, to develop my own skills, um, that, that everything was just kind of going to be panic mode and, and kind of the products that I got from my team would just, I'd look at them and do the best I could and be like, yep, looks good and, and fired off. So um, all of that was, it was just a situation I wasn't comfortable with, but it certainly was, you know, part of that carrot was it says data scientist. Um, and it was, it, it was slightly more money than the other two jobs I was offered. Um, so there was that kind of tugging at me as well. But um, yeah, in the end, I just decided that it, the opportunity for me to learn and to, you know, to earn that title and to build the skills that I, that I lack now is more important. And so uh, it was tough, but yeah, I had to turn that one down. Congratulations on the, on the uh, other offers, though, man. That's that's yeah, huge. Appreciate man. It. Multiple, multiple offers at the same time, man. That's huge. Congrats. Yeah, um, I was very blessed. Uh, Tor, I see you got some good comments here. Tor and then Russell. Is Tor still here? I don't see him. Uh, oh, yeah. There you are, Tor. Uh, Tor. Still here. I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was just thinking, you know, stage three, stage one. Uh, right now, um, I've been looking at this one particular spreadsheet for the past 15 years where they do uh, complete planning for audits in Norway. Um, and, you know, this spreadsheet is collecting the correct data, but it's structured in the wrong way. Now, when we're talking about stage one, stage three, you know, I have several ideas of what I can do with that data if it was just structured correctly. So right now I've developed a whole structure, a new method of collecting the data, structuring the data, the same data, in a different way, which will then allow me to do all the things that I want to do and the value added to the users. And this is technically what it is. I mean, whenever you go into a job, whether you're going in at stage three or stage one or stage three or two, you know, at any given level, it is your job to bring people up to the stage three. If you come in at stage three, and you realize that stage one and two is not properly performed, well, as a responsible person at stage three, it's your job to make sure that stage one and stage two is working. And that is part of your job, because once you get one and two working, then you can actually start performing the value add. Now, whether you are performing, performing stage one and two yourself, that's a different story. You may go in at the stage three and realize, oh, this is way beyond me. However, I am here to give the guidelines for stage one and two to work. And when those two steps are working, then I can come back in and then I can really make value for stage four, five and six. So this is how I'm working. It doesn't matter. I mean, your skill set and what your job responsibility is, you have to tune it to the role and the function that you have. That that's how I view it. Or thank you so much. Um, awesome guys. Well, that's some great discussion today, guys. I think we'll begin to wrap it up. Hopefully, you guys get a chance to uh, to uh, go back and listen to all the great advice that that was given today. Some fire fire advice. Um, and uh, uh, hopefully, you get a chance to listen to the interview I released earlier today with uh, Jacqueline Wales. She's the author of the book called The Fearless Factor. Uh, that was kind of a personal episode for me. I feel like I was. Uh, very, very open with her and we're discussing some shit that I was going through. So uh, hopefully you get a chance to tune into that. I really enjoyed speaking to her. Also, I uh, want to show you guys something real quick. I am launching something very soon here. 
I'm launching a course called The Employable Data Scientist. It's coming out and making this a reality. Uh, and it's all about how to uh, essentially how to turn your project experience into actual work experience. So it's create a job in such, or sorry, create a portfolio in such a way that you actually get hired or complete a, uh, a portfolio project and or take home assignments so that you get hired. So it's uh, breaking it down like this, how to think like a project manager, so how to work like a data scientist, data science project lifecycle, how to work in sprints, how to think like a scientist, uh, all about the scientific method, problem framing, question design, how to ask good questions, how to make an effective analysis, how to create an analysis plan, where to find data for your project, how to think like an engineer, all about how to code for reproducibility, reusability, uh, when you shouldn't use notebooks and scripts, how to use GitHub, a quick introduction to, to Docker, what the hell does it even mean to deploy a model to production, then how to think like a business person. We're talking about uh, the importance of an executive summary, guidelines for creating an executive summary, and then how to tell stories uh, for data science. And then I'll have a bunch of project templates. Um, so these project templates will uh, not be completed. They'll be blank templates, but me coaching you along the way with uh, suggestions in the form of uh, comments and stuff. Uh, how to navigate the interview process, and that's it. So yeah, I finally did it. Went out the course. Uh, the employable data scientist is the name of the course. Um, it'll be launching soon. Um, uh, I'll do a, a, a pre pre-launch at some point. Uh, people want to join the pre-launch, ninety-seven bucks. After that, it goes up to uh, uh, four hundred ninety-seven dollars. Uh, just just put it out there, guys. Uh, it's happening. Um, super excited to uh, to to do this and. Uh, I will be posting a few logos out there in the in the Slack channel that I would love to have you guys input on. I've got three logos that I'm working with right now. Uh, so there's this logo, this logo, and that's a crepe. That's not a logo. Uh, this logo, this logo, and that logo. Uh, and I'll put this into the Slack channel and I'll have you guys vote on that. So I'd appreciate that. Um, but yeah, I'm trying to do something different with my course. There's There's a lot of great content out there. Uh, I mean, shout out to Andrew Jones, shout out to Avery Smith. They got those type of courses where they're just going to teach you all of data science um, from the ground up. My course is more geared towards people who are, um, who've already learned the basics and who are maybe early career data scientists, maybe junior data scientists or data science intern uh, who just are trying to figure out how to take themselves to the next level. Um, so, you know, this is kind of for you guys. So, uh, keep an eye out for that. The employable data scientist. Um, what do you guys think of the name, man? <laughs> what do you guys think of the name? Uh, keep it real with me. Keep it real with me. I want some feedback on that. Yeah, no, I I like it because I mean that's what it's all about is making yourself employable or marketable, like one of those two. But yeah, getting yourself involved and out there. Right on, man. Thank you. Some good comments in the chat. Thank you guys so much. Yeah, it's uh, man, it's like one of those things. Like I'm creating the course. I'm like. This is even good. Like, what the fuck am I doing? Like, you know, I'm enrolled in like Andrew Jones' course and it's amazing. Like, just, you know, I was doing market research. His course is amazing. And I was looking at Avery's course, like, it's amazing. But then I'm like, yeah, I'm doing something completely different from them. Like, I'm not doing the same thing. I'm doing something different. And I feel like I'm addressing a niche and a need that, um, that doesn't quite exist yet. Uh, then after this, I'll have another course that's launching that'll be all about how to learn more effectively. And that course will be super cheap. It'll be like 50 bucks for that course. Uh, an entire series talking about everything from how to read a book, how to write notes, how to actually learn effectively and quickly. Uh, and it'll be, it'll be a lot of fun. And I'll make that a super cheap course so that, you know, people can, uh, but yeah, I guess, I'm, I guess I'm jumping on this course creator bandwagon. 
So hopefully you guys, you know, I'll reach out to a couple of folks here to do like a test run of it to, to get your feedback. So you can expect some messages from you guys. All right, guys, thanks again for uh, joining in. Thanks again for hanging out. It's been an excellent session as usual, my friends. Remember, you've got one life on this planet. Why not try to do something big? Cheers, everyone. <laughs>